I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Alexis. She's the mother of Theodore, a little boy who has P17 13.1 to 13.3 microduplication, charge syndrome, and an ultra-complex congenital heart defect. Let's talk about it. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, this is going to be a real uh, a real treat. Uh, we are sitting down with our new friend Alexis, and uh, we're going to be diving into the world of um, of caregiving, uh, which is something that you know we've been we've been thinking about a lot lately. I think I mentioned this on a podcast recently, but we're working on a podcast right now uh, with the Canadian Center for Caregiving Excellence, um, and uh, you know it's a show for them. It's their own podcast. Um, and, and it's, you know, in order to do that correctly, there's a lot of research that goes into it. And we were, we were fortunate enough to be invited to their first ever, um, uh, their first ever summit, their first ever like conference. And, and it was a huge eye opening opportunity for the three of us. It was awesome. Yeah, it, was, it really was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also kind of like, you know, kind of, uh, sobering, mm-hmm. Uh, because the state of caregiving in this country is is um, it's not what it should be, and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and so, so I look forward to kind of diving deeper into that project. Um, and selfishly, I look forward to this conversation today with you, Alexis, because I feel like this conversation is kind of going to give us a little bit of insight into the things that we should be thinking about when it comes to the importance of caregiving, when it comes to the lack of support, and when it comes to the things that people might not think about because if you are not a caregiver, you don't have any reason to think about it. But the very real reality for a lot of caregivers is that uh, they too were in that position until they find themselves in a position where all of a sudden that shifts. And um, in your case, Alexis, a mother of two, uh, that shift I'm, I'm guessing happened um, after the birth of one of your children um, so, but, but I, I want to let you kind of lay the land here, give us a little bit of insight into who you are and what brings you on the podcast today. Cool. Um, so yeah, I, uh, had my son about four years ago. He'll be four in February and my life totally changed. Um, we tried for a really long time to get pregnant and, uh, kind of struggled along the way. And I had a tough pregnancy, but overall, everything was normal. We were on track to have a normal, happy and healthy baby. And um, my life quickly changed within the first 48 hours of his life. We were turned upside down and pretty much told our child would die um, before he turned a year. Oh, wow. And 
Yeah. And then the pandemic started uh, two months after that. Oh, my wow. God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, um, something that I, I found really striking, find really striking about you saying that is, is I was under the impression that like a lot of, um, you know, screening is done before a baby is born to sort of like identify potential complications or challenges that, that, that might arise. Um, but, but what, like, what was it that happened in the first 48 hours that was so shocking to you that you weren't expecting, um, with your, with the birth of birth of your son? Yeah. So throughout the pregnancy, I did have a few complications. Um, I was followed by the midwife clinic and, um, ultimately everyone just reassured me over and over again that everything was fine. All of my testing was normal. Um, I was followed by the specialty program that does like, um, frequent ultrasounds because I had extra fluid, um, in the amniotic sac and on my body. So that is, was a concern, but ultimately they just said that can just happen. It's, um, you know, it's not uncommon, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything, and then um, the day we were moving into our new house, um, I thought I was going into labor uh, two week, three weeks early, and um, they found a heart murmur, my son, and ultimately they just said, like, it just happens. It's a, uh, you have a hole that is there during, um, like, when they're growing, it closes at, at birth, and then um, he'll be fine. There's nothing mm. to worry about. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, when he came out, um, everything was really good. The first 24 hours were your typical calm, um, easygoing, like newborn days. He was really sleepy, eating a lot. Uh, but they just wanted to check out his heart just to be sure because of that murmur. And uh, it turns out there was a lot more to that murmur, even though mm. they had checked his heart several times um, throughout my pregnancy. They didn't see anything but he had an ultra complex, um, congenital heart defect. It, um, he had a, like a ASD is what they call it. It's a, a, a hole in between the chambers of your heart. And because of that hole during, um, his fetal growth stage, he didn't have enough blood to the left side of his heart. So the right side grew really, really fast and the left side didn't grow at all. Um, so he has basically like, um, a really giant muscle on the side that goes to the lungs and a really small muscle on the side that goes to the body. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So like, like half a heart essentially, like he was born with, you know, effectively like half of a heart, like three quarters. of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Like then, two sizes too small. That's yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. yeah. Refitting yeah. since uh, it's, I, I mean, this is being released far after Christmas, but yeah. I, I just <laughs> want to say too, what a time to move uh, three weeks before um, your expected due date. That's, uh, Oh yeah. It was <laughs> the worst timing ever. <laughs> um, what, so, so, um, how did they, how did they tell you about this? Because I, I, it seems like such a stark contrast to that first 24 hours yeah. where things seem to be going well. And then they're like, Oh, we're just going to take them off to do these tests. And then I imagine they come back and, and it totally uh, changes. So Everything was great. Um, we had originally said we didn't want any family to visit while we were in hospital. Um, but we were like, everything's awesome. Let's have my in-laws down to meet the kid, to meet them. Mm. And, uh, we ended up texting them that morning to say, Hey, we have to go for this thing called an echocardiogram. Didn't even know what it was. Um, it'll be about an hour, but we'll meet you guys when you're at the hospital. We'll text you when we're done and you can come up and meet them. 
Um, so we all went down. I got to hold him while they took me down in the wheelchair and he just slept through um, the, the echo. And this is starts to go on for a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And at this point, we're in there for three hours. And wow. my in-laws are just sitting at the Tim's at the hospital uh, waiting for us. And we are starting to notice that there's something wrong. There's more people coming in the room, but nobody's really telling us what's up. Right, right. And um, the doctor finally comes in. She says, I'm going to do my own pictures um, and then I'll, I'll share with you guys what's going on. And then they take us to what I fondly call the bad news room. It's the the room with the beige walls, and there's usually like some sailboats in the in a picture behind the couch that you're yeah. sitting in. Oh fuck! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The and, situation uh, room is, uh, is <laughs> another way of putting it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, she flips over a page, and I remember seeing one through seven uh, written down with each problem with his heart written on it. And I oh. totally lost it. I was like, I couldn't, I can't really recall the conversation. Like I just have trauma block on it. Yeah. Um, and they basically walked us through like a picture of his heart and all the things that were wrong with it. They discussed um, kind of the possibilities of the outcomes with us. Um, they basically told us um, the first week is going to be pivotal in his life. Um, it really depend was going to depend on what happened once his um, patent ductus arteriosus closes. Um, he could potentially need emergency surgery and may or may not survive that. But if it closes and everything is fine, then we're good to go for a couple of years um, until he really needs to start like walking and crawling and using more energy. Wow. Whoa. Okay. Was was that super disorienti- disorienting in the sense that like, you know, you're, you were holding him and, and he, it seems so normal and they, yeah. and they take him off to do these pictures and you think you're just going to be an hour and you're going to, going to meet your family. But then all of a sudden they're telling you that like these pictures don't look the way that they should, but like you're looking at him and you like by all other accounts, yeah. it looks mm. normal. So <clears throat> the first time I saw my husband cry was on our wedding day. Uh, the second time was that day. Mm. I, um, went to therapy. Well, I still am in therapy, but started therapy mm-hmm. originally because I was so traumatized by his reaction to what happened. He just knelt down on the floor and was like beside himself. Yeah. Like it was so hard to witness. Oh. And I felt like I was watching it from like outside of my body. Yeah. Um, when I think back on it, I can like picture us both in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, then, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Continue. No, I was just going to say, and then, you know, we went upstairs um, and my in-laws had suspected something had gone on because they had been waiting for several hours at this point. And I just remember um, seeing my husband collapse into his dad's arms and Ugh. just say, say that, you know, that, that he was really, that Theo, our son was really sick Ugh. and it was just the most heartbreaking um, experience that we've had to date. Um, it was just, yeah. Really- Sad, sad dads. Like that is that, I don't know what it is, but like, I'm, I'm, it's so hard for me to like, to that. Mm -hmm. That's one of those things where like, I just, I have a hard time processing that. Uh, so I can't even imagine what that must've felt like for you. Um, just, just to see, you know, to see, on top of that, to, like you know, you are also dealing with your own, yeah. you know, emotions oh, yeah. in that, and and then and then to see this person that you 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 know that you hold so highly in your mind, and and there's you know there's this like this this 
the, you, you know, they, they're the epitome of strength and, and there's, there's so much care there, but then to see them also so shattered while you're also trying to fucking deal with what's going on. And, and then not to mention like in the midst of this, even though, you know, a couple months down the road in the midst of this going through this global like event that shattered the entire world. Um, oh, it and, gets so much worse. Yeah, I bet. You know, it's like, I, I, I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, how COVID affected my life. And, and when I look back at that time, it was, it was, it was traumatic for everyone. Um, and in those moments of trauma, it, time is a really fickle, odd, sort of elusive thing. And so it's like, it's kind of, it's sort of hard to sort of really properly remember what the fuck that time was like, even though it was just right there. Like we just, we're still just coming out of it. To add on top of that, something so monumental in your own personal life is, um, I mean, that's really, it's really astounding. One thing that I think is interesting too about grief and, and seeing somebody else go through something at the same time as you. I was talking to my therapist uh, about this <laughs> this week. Um, I like, I, uh, when my parents got divorced, I ended up having this like really sort of like independent emotional experience of like, you know, like of trying to figure out how I was going to make it through the the world because like my parents were no longer sort of there for me because they were caught up in their own sort of figuring out their own divorce situation. And so emotionally, I ended up spending a lot of that time sort of like isolated. But I feel like now when I deal with emotional situations, it's easier for me to deal with them on my own and be Mm. sort of emotionally isolated in managing that. And I find a lot of, I feel really uncomfortable when I'm observing somebody else go through that Mm -hmm. because I'm not used to like bearing witness to that and sort of trying to, I want to like make sure everybody feels okay. So then it just adds another burden and stress on me. So as, as a, as a a mother and and a wife who's going through this and, you know, observing the people around you who are, who are, you know, dealing with this grief in their own sort of way, but trying to manage your own experience at that time. Like Mm -hmm. what was, what was Mm -hmm. that? challenge like um when theo was first born i actually did have um a really long long labor and then an emergency c-section so i was actually heavily sedated and then i was on a lot of narcotics for the week after he was born because i was in pain from laboring for like two days um and Mm. then a c-section on top of that so i really remember that original shock as an out-of-body experience um and a lot of it is stories from other people that i can't recall um for me after the fact um it was really hard because i felt almost like i couldn't put it on my husband how i was feeling because i was because he was going through it too I really leaned on my own family for support in that sense. And um, just if you're so thrown in the days of newborns that you don't even have time to process it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't until just in the last two years, I feel like I've really been able to like dive deep into the traumatic memories that I have. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, the, like the, you mentioned that the doctor said um, that that first week was going to be incredibly uh, crucial. So like what did, after, after they told you and walked you through the picture and those seven different points, what, what sort of started to happen after, after that? 
they uh, let us go upstairs to meet our in-laws and grab our things. And they took us down to NICU um, urgently, like we were down within a half an hour. Hmm. Um, and he was immediately hooked up to all kinds of um, monitors. And we stayed there for 10 days. Um, he ended up doing fine. Uh, his the whole clothes, like, uh, I want to say five days after birth. Um, but then he was losing weight. We, um, really, really struggled with his feeding and mm. this continued on for the first year of his life. He ended up with a feeding tube, um, after being diagnosed with failure to thrive at eight weeks old. Um, mm. can you, can you walk us through f- failure to thrive? Because, um, uh, you know, Brian and I both, uh, neither of us have kids. Um, I'm sure if Taylor, I was you're going to say we're be... both failing to thrive. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, arguably, um, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, we, we don't have kids. Taylor does, and I'm sure Taylor's you know pretty aware of this since this is probably something that is like a part of the conversation. But but uh, for people who aren't really familiar, like what did, what does that term mean? What does that look like? And and what are like what are the like how do how does a pediatrics hospital sort of tackle that that issue? Yeah. So failure to thrive is, is again, it's the opposite of thriving as a baby. So Theo (laughs) struggled. He could not breastfeed. Um, I spent thousands of dollars with feeding therapists and could not get him to feed. Um, it was really, really challenging and he, um, would take bottles, but it was taking us an hour, two hours to get the bare minimum into him. And he Mm. just really, really struggled and he had really bad reflux. Um, and we later learned that he had a malformation in his throat that was trapping uh, milk and then it was going into his lungs. Oh Um, wow. But he was good. He has a decreased pain sensation. So he wasn't coughing and he wasn't having the typical response. So we weren't seeing exactly what was happening. Um in the early days, it wasn't until he was older. So around eight, six to eight weeks, um, I actually was taking him into the hospital for something else. The pandemic had just started. Um, so my husband wasn't allowed to go with me. I was going in for an RSV needle Mm. and I had noticed, I looked at the nurse. I said, he's lost weight. Like he's, he's lost half a pound since last week when I last had him weight at the doctor's office. And she looked at me, she's like, are you sure? Cause that's, that's not okay. And I, I was like, yeah, I'm positive. And she was like, okay, like go home, call the doctor, they'll get you in. And I, uh, felt very sneaky and I just walked over to the cardiology office. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm not going home. Fuck uh, that. That's right. I walked in and looked at receptions. I was like, I need to see the nurse right now. And, um, Kim, she's my lifesaver. Um, she came out of the office right away and had him, um, assessed immediately. They had the doctor there. They thought that he was for sure in heart failure, that they, he was going to be admitted and need heart surgery right away. Oh. Um, like though, just the way it worked out was had nothing to do with his heart, um, and all to do with his ability to eat and his drive to eat. So, uh, within two days after that, we ended up, um, admitted hospital failure to thrive. So Theo had been losing weight. He was lethargic. Um, he was dehydrated and generally unwell. Um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, we went into through a merge and, um, that was when he got his first G tube, um, which as a new mom is pretty horrific to experience. Um, they basically put a tube in through his nose and down into his stomach um, and tape it to his face. And then I had to learn a whole new way of feeding. Um, 
I basically was pumping breast milk and then they were having me add formula to the breast milk to increase the calories. And then I was having to put it into the G tube through a giant syringe and holding it above him for like 45 minutes. Oh, I had like one really jacked arm because I was constantly yeah. having to hold it over my head. Yeah. Did you have, did you have any like medical experience before this? Mm. Um, I did actually. Um, it's, so funny looking back at my life, I feel like there's so many things that foreshadowed what was to come. I went to school for respiratory therapy and I worked at the children's hospital uh, for two years and I really hated it. Uh, mm. So now I don't do anything in the healthcare industry, but yeah, I had, I did have quite a bit of experience going into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. RTs, they know their shit. Mm-hmm. They're smarty pants. I, I, I imagine that I was curious about that because um, I imagine it even if you do have some experience in that, um, the 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 challenge or like the the difficulty of of sort of seeing your own child going through those situations, I imagine, is quite different. Mm-hmm. There was lots of times that I wished I didn't know what they were talking about because I just mm. felt like maybe if I didn't know, it wouldn't hurt so much. Like it so be so emotionally. Um, like just so sad all the time because I just kind of knew what was coming. I knew what the outcomes were. I had seen other kids go through what my Mm. son was going through and I wanted to be oblivious. Um, I'm really grateful for my background now because I have been a huge, huge advocate for Theo and he's thriving and doing amazing now. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that like, I, I totally understand the, the sort of, the sort of like, desire to be blissfully unaware of the of the harsh reality of a lot of the things that come with you know that that side of the medical system and uh, you know it, working so closely with peds and being like just understanding the language and the the prognosis and and the details that fall underneath all of that um but then again you know to your point it's like what what better what better um, advocate than someone who is who has a background in that area, right? Like, I mean, for myself growing up, like my mother was a, a nurse, and God damn, like I'm pretty I'm pretty lucky to have had a, a nurse for a mother who who advocated for me growing up because you know, um, like even you might not see it this way, but even you saying that that story of like mentioning that the, he's losing weight and the nurse saying go home and call. And we'll t- and then we'll take it from there. And you going fuck that. I'm walking across the hall and I'm going to say something to someone, someone who might not have like had you know any kind of background in the medical the medical world or the medical field might have just heard that and went yes okay y- you know you are the nurse you are telling me this I listen to you. Whereas you're going fuck no 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 I I'm I'm walking over here. There's humans right here. I'm just going to talk to them. I know how this works. You know it, it, you it, and my. <laughs> You and my husband would have a great laugh over this because he knows I don't listen to a word that most of them say, and I challenge them on everything. Yeah, yeah. It drives, it drives him crazy. He's like, "Can you just take them at their word?" No, no, and no, and and don't ever change because again, like that's that is advocacy. That's I mean, to, to you know, it, as annoying as it might be for the professionals in the field, um, I think I think we all need to take a moment to be grateful for those people that really push push back against the system and say no because. I mean, doing this podcast for nine years now, 
I can't count the amount of times that we've heard stories of people's lives almost literally being saved due to someone saying, fuck no. I'm not listening to that because I know, I know that there's, you know, there's another answer here or there's something else going on and we need to look at it. We need to look at it from a different perspective. And I mean, that, that has happened with me, with my mother growing up. Like there were multiple times where my mother just said, nah, I'm not going home. You guys, you guys figure this out. And of course, you know, it ended up being something very severe and very serious that needed to be looked at right there in that moment. So Mm -hmm. kudos to you for that, because that is, that is really, really incredible. Mm -hmm. I I would love to kind of know, you know, so obviously this was a very intense, um, you know, beginning to Theo's life. Um, and so I'm, and, and it seems like there's, it's not just the heart, uh, that's the issue. There's, there's like it, there's all these cascading things that have been popping up, um, uh, since his birth. So like, if, you know, if you're if like, what's your elevator pitch when, when, you know, if you were having to, to give a sort of or, you know, when you, when you, uh, whenever you go through the customs and they say, what's your job? I, I've always had a hard time with that. Cause I'm like, Oh fuck, I don't know. I'm a, sp- I'm a speaker, a podcaster, I was an actor. Like, I don't know what to say. If you, if you had to go through customs and they had to say, Hey, what is, uh, what is, what is Theodore's health status? What is he dealing with? How do you, how do you break that down for people? Like, what are the things that you say? Yeah. So we found out, um, on March 28th, 2020, that my son Theo actually had a super rare genetic disorder. He is one out of 6 billion people that have, um, it's called P17, 13.1 to 13.3 microduplication. Um, and his is the largest out of the 12 known cases, um, by 6,000 times. So it's, what the fuck? oh yeah, it's totally unheard of. It's never been found in Canada before. It's, um, really, really crazy. Whoa. And Theo just never fit into anything they told us that we could predict out of the 12 other cases they know about. He's nothing like them. Um, Whoa. Theo right now is doing really great, but he definitely has a lot of health issues. Um, he has pretty severe epilepsy. Um, his seizures last anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes and he turns gray and stops breathing. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, yeah, he has, um, like a speech delay that they don't expect he'll ever really be able to fully communicate. Um, he's also delayed developmentally, which honestly is totally understandable with everything he's been through. Mm -hmm. Um, he also has, has had some feeding issues, but he's come a long way, um, over the last four years. Um, we see like eight or nine different specialists. He's got all kinds of stuff. He's got hearing issues, vision issues. Uh, we actually, this, um, funny that we're talking about advocacy. I had been bugging them for like two years that I wanted to get a full genetic panel done. Um, when they originally tested him at birth, it was just just to see, they didn't think there would be anything. Um, they did a microarray testing. I really wanted a full genome sequencing testing done, which tests for everything. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I got it was because I agreed to be in a study for something else completely. And we found out that Theo has charge syndrome, which isn't actually all that rare. Um, but it's basically puts a bow tie on everything that Theo has experienienced over his lifetime and gives it a, gives us a name. Okay. Did you say charge? charge charge syndrome, a disorder yeah. that affects many areas of the body charges an abbreviation for several of the features common in the disorder. Colo 
coloboma, heart defects, atresia coronae. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> growth retardation. Can't say that anymore. Uh, genital abnormalities and ear abnormalities. I okay. So this is. I mean, this is this is. This is blowing my mind right now. Can I just repeat it to you? Did you say P17, 13.1 to 13.3 micro duplication? Yeah. And is you that won't a, find much on Google for no, that? No, you yeah. Is that is that like a chromosome? Is that like something to do with the chromosome? So it is a chromosome disorder. Um, okay. There's no name for it because it's so rare. Um, our hospital is actually working on naming it um, after Theo. <laughs> Oh, cool. oh, that's very that's very neat. Interesting, of course. Like yeah. that's that's how diseases get named, right? <laughs> of course. Uh, okay, so 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 um, sorry, sorry. I, I feel like we're jumping all over the place, but just to um, just to like help me wrap my head around this, because I mean, God, this is so complex, and I and and you're in the thick of it. I can't even I can't even imagine. But so charge syndrome is like is that is that sort of a catch all name that can that you know, this P17, 13.1 to 13.3 microduplication can sort of fit under uh, to, to give it a more, no. no, it's completely separate. So they're saying that he was struck by lightning three times uh, between his duplication, uh, charge syndrome, and the heart defect were hmm. all three separate bad things that happened. No. Wow. Oh my God. Whoa. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Holy smokes. And charge syndrome is a genetic condition as well. It affects, I can't remember the name of it, but a specific gene um, that they look for in it. But Theo's charge syndrome is considered relatively mild compared to what it could have been. Wow. Um, and is, is I, I was curious about this, is Theo's sister older or younger? Aubrey is younger. She just turned two. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And And what was it like? So Theo was your first child and then mm -hmm. you had Aubrey a couple years later um what was it like go, mm. did you know that you always wanted to have multiple children yes yeah did um, you have any thoughts or reservations um getting pregnant the second time oh it was a totally an accident mm -hmm. <laughs> we were not we were not prepared or ready <laughs> one bit to have a second child mm -hmm. um and they actually originally they had told us it was like a 0.01% chance um, that our next child could have what Theo had. And then at our 20 week ultrasound, they said, Oh, it, it looks like she might also have a heart condition. No. And we were like, Are oh you God. kidding me? Anyways, she didn't. And she's fine and very happy and healthy. Um, thank God. But she, yeah, they gave us quite the scare. Wow. Yeah. And no doubt. We will not be having any more children. We are done. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. Um, when, yeah. when you have a, uh, child with multiple diagnoses like these um what does i, I i'm i'm imagining like uh, looking at like taylor's uh daughter and sort of like what their plans are for you know like sending her to school and and like the way that she will grow up and the life that she'll sort of live i'm i'm guessing and like jared said we don't have children ourselves but i'm guessing like you you sort of have this idea in your head that's sort of like in this layer, uh, narrow lane of like what their experience might be like based on like where you think they're going to go to school and what their interests might be and all mm -hmm. these sort of things. Um, but I'm guessing that that changes quite a bit when you have a child that's diagnosed with things like this. So can you tell us a bit about like what that experience yeah. is like? So that was actually kind of part of the grieving process for us because 
you know, we had envisioned that we were going to put Theo in hockey one day. My uh, husband is a, used to be a hockey superstar. And that was like something he was so looking forward to having a son for. And then we learned that that will likely never be possible. Um, but it goes even beyond that um, to the point that like my parents still have an RESP that they put money into because they still hope Theo's going to go to university one day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to let go of that hope um, for what they're going to become. And um, yeah, we've really had to change our expectation on that. It's like as simple as like, I don't even know if I want to send Theo to school because he's nonverbal and children that are disabled and nonverbal are the most likely to be abused in mm. physically, emotionally, sexually. Mm-hmm. And I am terrified of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I will send him unless he de- suddenly develops the ability to share more with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like we really don't, get to look forward to a lot of things with Theo. It's really hard for him to travel. Um, He can't play sports. He can't follow instructions well. So he doesn't get to go to gymnastics like his sister does. Mm. And that is really, really hard. Um, But there are programs out there that have been really great for us. Uh, We actually are going on our Make-A-Wish trip in February. No way. Um, Yeah. Theo wished to meet Elsa at her castle in Florida. Wow. Heading to Disney oh. World. Yeah. He, oh. he, um, at the age of three, loves pretty girls, and Elsa is like yeah. right up there for. She's her. pretty. <laughs> She's very pretty. I love yeah, that. I, I mean, can you, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about about Theo? Like, because you know, one of the things that that I I know you had mentioned was like, you know, you have Theo, and you're basically told, all right, you know, it's it's pretty likely that this this little guy isn't going to make it to one year. Um, and now we're four years in and you're, you know, at four years old, e- even, even with a, a severely you know, disabled child that's, that, can, that, that can't necessarily communicate, there are, there are these things that you are learning and seeing and, and, and like, you know, as, as he develops. Um, so what, you know, what, tell us about Theo. Like what, what is Theo like right now? What is Theo's day to day? And, and what is, what does your guys' relationship look like with the way that you, uh, the way that you interact with Theo? That that likely is very different from like, you know, maybe maybe someone who is a parent of of a child who isn't living with with a disability. Yeah, um, Theo is seriously the happiest kid, and it is mind blowing to me. Like he's happier than neurotypical kids are. <laughs> he always has a smile on his face he's always laughing he loves to be tickled and asks to be tickled like a hundred times a day and <laughs> he um is very obsessive about things um we do think that he will eventually get an ocd diagnosis but he is obsessed with certain toys so he picks a toy in the morning mm. and that is like his thing and you're not taking that away from him for the rest of the day and he'll <laughs> probably go to bed with it at night um he's so much fun though. Like he loves to play and he plays hard. He loves to wrestle and, um, you know, jump all over the place. He's <laughs> super hyper. Um, he is really sensory, um, seeking. And mm-hmm. so we have like this, I call it a giant salad bowl. It's like this huge, huge bowl he sits in and we just spin him in it for like half mm-hmm. an hour every day. <laughs> and he just laughs the whole time. He's so happy. Um, he doesn't really have an in-between. He's either like 10 out of 10 happy or like one out of 10 happy. There's no right, real right. in-between. Um, things change for us kind of at a drop of a hat. So um, 
just yesterday, you know, he woke up at 5.30 um, barfing. Uh, we had sedation the day before, so sometimes that happens. Mm. Um, and he just was ended up just being sick all day. But when he's sick, it's like the worst. And he's in a super foul mood and there's nothing that you can do that can make him happy. And that is our biggest struggle um, because he has to go to the hospital a lot. We, um, it's definitely slowed down the number of appointments that we have. We used to go once or twice a week for the first two and a half years of his life. Now it's more like once or twice a month. Um, but when he goes, um, things with you are just really, really challenging. He is absolutely terrified, Mm. um, of it. And he, yeah, it's really hard to get him out of that mood. So it's kind of like we take things one day at a time because we never really know. And with Theo's epilepsy, um, that really throws curves into things because yeah. he'll be totally fine and we think he's great. And then uh, if it's really cold out and it shocks the system, he'll have a really long, terrible seizure. And then mm. the rest of the day is a write-off. Mm. Mm-hmm. Are there, are there um, typical triggers for his uh seizures like you you just said if it's really cold outside is a temperature a thing so we're we're still learning them um we have figured out he doesn't like really really cold he doesn't tolerate really really hot um he's really happy if it's between 10 and 20 degrees that's about (laughs) it um we know that if he's tired or if he's sick that definitely triggers it for him um but then we've also seen them just literally (laughs) like drop of a hat we have no idea what causes it and mm. um, it's really scary. And he so far has not been treatable um, for his seizures. We've done nine different medication trials and every single time um, he responds with, um, we think he hallucinates. It's really hard to tell. He gets really um, angry and um, upset and he harms himself um, mm. with any type of neurological type medication which is like so hard to watch. So it it does make us really hesitant to continue trying medications. Um, But we're kind of stuck in a hard place because seizures that last, you know, longer than a couple minutes, um, you're at risk of losing brain cells and you're, you know, we're at risk of, they call it SUDEP, um, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy um, because he goes untreated. But it's, yeah, we've seen all the specialists and kind of, just yeah trying to figure out the next best thing to help him porn satan drugs therapy it's not just the list of what i'm up to this weekend i'm comedian kiki anderson and those are just a handful of the taboo topics i've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast indecent the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table. Featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics, they all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. One one of the things that we... we, um sort of that I, that I was mentioning at the very top of the episode is just like the the state of caregiving in Canada or at least like the state of this like like the support systems for caregivers in Canada um and you know this is this is something that you have sort of just found yourself to be a part of this world you are a caregiver now um and 
I, I, I mean, by the sounds of what you are experiencing, it's like this sounds like it's even it 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 it's, it's it requires more energy and attention than a full time job would. Um, uh, like, and that's an understatement. Um, so it's funny how laughable that is. I know. Like, I know. It's like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it yeah. is. I mean, it's wild. Um, I, I guess like just to help kind of put that into context, um, you know, what does your, what does your life look like? And, and it, it, I mean, obviously this is a like all encompassing endeavor, uh, just to, just to be there to care and support for, uh, for for Theo, so you know, what does that look like? Like how 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 do you how does one do that yeah. in the in the system that we live in? What are there supports? Like how how financially how does that work? Like what where are you at with with being a caregiver, literally full time? Yeah, it's um, really complicated system. Um, I am in Nova Scotia, um, just to give context, because every province has a different program and Mm. some are better than others. Um, We ultimately, I was able to get the extended family caregiver leave on my first maternity leave. So I was able to be off for a year and eight months. And then um, I went back to work pregnant with my daughter. And that was um, not doable. I ended up off on sick leave two weeks later for stress leave. Um, I couldn't work. I physically couldn't. I was pregnant and had a child who was just in and out of the hospital. Um, and yeah, couldn't do it. And then when it was finally time, once my second maternity leave was done to go back to work, we made the decision for me not to go back. Um, we do have our kids in daycare, but that isn't enough for me to be able to go back to work unless someone wants to give me like 90 days a year of sick time or something Mm -hmm. and are going to be okay with that. Um, my previous employer, like it just wasn't possible. Um, Theo is sick frequently. He has a poor immune system. He like when he's in daycare, he's home more than he's there because he's just homesick all the time. You catch bugs constantly. Um, we have regular appointments at the hospital. So yeah, we ultimately, I did sacrifice my career that I worked really hard to get into. And I actually had worked really hard for promotion right before I went off. And it was um, really heartbreaking for me to kind of have to put that aside. And now I really feel like I'm out of the workforce. Like, I don't know how I'll ever get back into it. Mm. And um, my husband really had to step it up and we really had to change our lifestyle Um we went from a dual income household to a single. Um, and even with that, initially, um, we made too much money to qualify for any of the programs within the province. Um, if you make more than $90,000 a year, I believe after taxes, um, you don't qualify. But that doesn't necessarily mean all of a sudden you can afford respite care and yeah. all of the therapy and things that are required. Like, we owned a house and two cars before we ever had kids. Those payments didn't just disappear because all of a sudden we had a more expensive child than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, but now we do qualify uh, for this program and that has been really helpful for us. We have a childcare provider, Amber. Um, She's a lifesaver. She's like my adopted daughter. She's uh, Mm. not that much younger than me, but she, has created and fostered just this really incredible relationship with Theo. Um, She's with him five days a week. Now we do get help from her um, for two or three hours through Monday through Friday. And um, it's really, really great to just see him have 
built another relationship with another adult that he's able to really count on. And, um, and yeah, they've, it's just really beautiful to see the connection they have. And it's so helpful for me. Um, I don't necessarily get to take a break during that time, but I get to be a little bit less hands-on. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Sure. And I can cook dinner while mm-hmm. she entertains and yeah. that's super helpful. It, um, this, this makes me think of a conversation that we had, uh, uh, yesterday on an episode that will, will be coming up probably around when this comes out, uh, with a gentleman from, uh, every Canadian counts, which is, a, a, a group that's advocating for, uh, national dis disability insurance program, mm-hmm. um, similar to what they have in Australia. And, uh, w- during that conversation, we were talking about, um, children with developmental disabilities and how they grow up. And, and I mentioned to him that in working with uh, folks who have developmental disabilities teaching yoga, I, I found that a really big milestone for families is, is that, that time when those kids will leave the school system. So there's like, there's quite a bit of support when you're younger, but then, you know, when you get to that, that age when you're no longer in school, then a lot of those supports sort of end. And then you get into the point in, in, uh, families, uh, lives when, when, you know, parents are starting to age and get to the point where, you know, they have to, to sort of confront their own mortality and think about what might happen for their children after they're gone. Uh, have you, have you thought much about what the future looks like in terms of that? Yeah. It's um we're kind of in a unique situation where CEO's heart is still not great. Um, mm. He will need another surgery, um, but where he has poor growth, um, he's extremely short. Um, so he is getting wider, but not taller as mm. he ages and he's putting on muscle, but not at the rate they expect. Um, they don't necessarily think he'll make it to adulthood. So we are still kind of battling with that. You know, we talk all the time about, you know, the fact that a, he'll probably live with us for the rest of his life, but we don't know how long that right. life will be. Right. And um, yeah, it's tough because we go back and forth over, you know, when he was originally one and then even two, and even up until recently, we felt that there was an end date to this coming and well, absolutely heartbreaking there was this feeling of like, eventually he'll stop suffering and this won't continue. Mm. But now things aren't seeming that way. And it changes for us on, uh, you know, every six months or so we get some new diagnosis and some new prognosis and we have to reevaluate what that looks like for us. So, Mm. you know, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about how, you know, one day it'd be nice to have a house with a pool house for Theo to live in. Mm-hmm. And then the next day we're talking about like, well, what, what if that doesn't happen? What does that look like? Cause uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if, um, if you would feel comfortable talking about this. Um, but I, I imagine that if I was in your shoes and I, and I had a child like this, that a thought that might creep into my head from time to time was like, Oh, maybe, you know, if my child's suffering ends, maybe I'll have, maybe I'll be able to get my life back too. And I imagine that that's a pretty, I, I would, I imagine that I would feel really guilty thinking about that and that it might actually be better for me someday. Um, do you think about that? And, and like, how do you sort of process that if that feeling does come up? 
Yeah. Um, it's such a strange thing because I can't imagine my life <laughs> without Theo. I never want to see that day. Um, but also like, yeah, I want to retire one day and travel the world with my husband and have grandkids um, and know what that's like. And I'd like to have financial freedom one day, but also I would do anything to have Theo. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. super hard to process that when it comes up, but of course it does um, because it is a possibility that people talk to like doctors talk to us about it all the time that to be prepared for it. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, there's no real like answer to, to that question. I don't know how to deal with it. It comes mm. up and I just kind of let it rest um, and move on with the next yeah. thing. But I mean, I, I my, think you, no I matter think how you, often my, my therapist tells me this, I feel like I struggle so much with um, sort of applying it to my own life, but she always says it doesn't have to be this, but this or this, it can be this and this. Yeah. And, and I feel like those two things can be true at the same time where like, you know, you don't want to think about a life without Theo. And also, you know, if his suffering ends and you're able to have that opportunity down the road to enjoy your retirement, that that is also at the same time a, a, a reality that can be true and, and that you can, you know, not feel yeah. guilty about thinking about mm. those things. I mean, I, I think one of the things that you said that, that, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, it's not some genius thing, you know, it's, it's a very, it, it's a very practical and logical and actually really like smart way of looking about it. But, you know, it's, you're in a, you're in a position right now where the, the only option that you have is to take it one day at a time. Like there, it, you know, there, yes, yes, of course, there's, it's important for us to like, think about the future and look at the future. But also, you know, there's sometimes we find ourselves in, in situations where like th- th- giving that too much energy and giving that too much thought is actually super unproductive. And, and that's typically in moments of uh, crisis, right? Um, and this is like an extended moment of crisis for you guys where it's like y- you're, you're in a position where taking it one day at a time is actually the, the, the you know, the probably the best way forward because there's still so many variables at play and you know it's you really have no idea i mean you know 3 years ago you probably wouldn't have thought that you'd be here and no. and you know and here you who knows who know let's say 5 6 10 years from now uh Theo's still, still like still kicking, still doing his thing. And it's like at those moments, when you start to get a little bit further out from it, that's where it starts to become maybe a little bit more normalized and maybe a little less sort of acute and critical in that moment. And it's like, okay, maybe we can allow for a little bit more space to think beyond, you know, the next month. Um, uh, and again, I you know I'm just talking on my ass here, uh, but but I do I do feel I do feel like there's uh, there's you know when when people find themselves in a situation similar to this, it, it's a it's a situation where you're you're just focused on the day to day. It um, it reminds me of kind of what one of our turning points for us was when Theo um, had his 
NJ tubes in, um, so a tube that goes past the stomach and into his intestine. Um, he was so miserable and he was in so much pain and crying and lethargic and didn't was like throwing up. And we had my in-laws come down to watch him for an hour. And I will never forget sitting at brunch with my husband and we both started crying. And we said, we knew that this was the beginning of the end, like the true end. We knew he was dying and we planned where we were going to bury our eight month old. Mm. And uh, we wanted to bury him with his, our nephew that passed at 27 weeks. And we made this whole plan and we just sat and cried and accepted that this is what it is. And, mm. you know, we talked about the fact that we wouldn't have any more kids and we, we made like a life plan around this gut feeling that we had. Um, ultimately it ended up being a medical mishap and his tube was tied too tight around his septum of his nose and mm. it was bleeding into anyways, it was a whole mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. We fixed that and then life went on. But that for us was such a reality check of like, holy crap, we have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, it's like, it's one of those things that when you, when you say that and when you hear that, it's the, you know, the, the, res- the response on my end is like, of course. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that we know and, and we know that we know, but we so often and so easily forget. And, and it's those reminders that just like are so important, which is why I think this conversation in and of itself is like so important. When they, when they fixed the uh, tubing, tied too tight around the septum did you and your husband sort of look at each other and go yeah yeah but like oh, i mean we're just joking right like that wasn't yeah like yeah. like what uh, you know uh, what? i was so angry at the situation oh, i was so angry with the hospital because i fought and fought and fought and told them that something was wrong and i was told over and over again that everything was fine and that he was just an irritable baby and mm. uh I ended up just being with anger and, and it wasn't until months later that we talked about that conversation and we're like, well, then maybe that was an exaggeration, but that was truly how we felt in that moment. And we've had lots of that same moment has happened since then. And it is really hard to take mm-hmm. it day to day because, mm-hmm. um, we're huge planners. We love to plan stuff, uh, totally. but yeah. it all gets canceled all the time. I'm terrified that our make-a-wish trip is going to get canceled because I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did um I I wanted to ask before we wrap up. You mentioned that you uh started going to therapy a couple of years ago to to really get into processing um what the last 4 years has been like. Uh what value have you found therapy to be for you in this? Um it's totally changed who I am as a person and what I've been through. I was extremely depressed going through this. Um, I gained almost 80 pounds from the time Theo was born up until two years ago. I just turned to food. Um, I was really sad all the time. I shut out most of the people that I considered to have neurotypical children. Um, Mm. And my therapist really helped me to work through the fact that um, I am still me, even though my life is very different from other people and really learn where my identity is and where my strengths lie. I've mm. learned um, I'm a very fierce advocate for Theo and um, getting to know other parents of children with disabilities. It, I 
I've been able to pass that skill on to other people and teach other people how to advocate for their children and what they should be asking and looking for. And I've made new connections in that sense. And I am very extroverted and I thrive uh, with having a large social group. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just really, my therapist really helped me to, to just refine that with new people and people that can um, really lift me up and bring me that sense of purpose that I was looking for. And even though losing my career, which was such a huge part of my identity, I've been able to reshape it into um, someone who really cares for their community and the local children um, that are disabled and for my own son and being able to really um, be myself, but also identify myself through Theo in making sure that he is able to live the best life possible along with my daughter, Aubrey. I always hate to leave her out um, because that does happen. Unfortunately, Theo really does take the spotlight, but we, I just work really hard to um, make sure that those two people who are the most important in my life have everything that they need and are happy and able to thrive. And Theo, I truly believe is alive to this day because of the amount of effort and advocacy and work that I've done um, for myself and, and with him. Mm. I am. I'm so, I'm so grateful that you um, have been able to find yourself in a place where not only are you able to be the mother that you know, and the best version of the mother that you can be for Theo uh, over the last, you know, almost four years um, and work through this, you know, the the mental hardships that come through that, but also to find yourself in a position where you are capable and, and, and courageous and vulnerable enough to come on a show like this and share your experience because um, these conversations are so vitally important. And, Again, you know, I said it earlier, but the the work that the Canadian Center for Caregiving Excellence is doing right now, a big part of that is changing policy and and putting in a national strategy to ensure that people who are in a position like yourself um, and the people in the future who will find themselves in a similar situation have the supports that they need. And it's this type of dialogue and these types of stories to be shared that are so important to ensure that we see that as a future uh, ahead of us. So I just want to thank you for for taking time and and you know for being willing to take you know take this time out of your day to to talk about this and be open about this uh, with two complete strangers <laughs> on the internet um, yeah. because it, it really is meaningful. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying all that. It is um, so isolating what I've been through. And that was one of the biggest struggles in the very beginning was that I didn't know anybody who had ever been through what I've been through. And it was, um, yeah, I turned inward. There was nothing out there for me at the time that I thought there turns out there is a lot. You just have to go looking for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share my story with anyone who's really willing to listen because I just want other moms and dads to know that, you know, we're going through it too. Mm-hmm. Alexis, uh, Theo might be one in a billion or one in six billion, whatever you said, but you're you're also one in six billion too. Yeah. You're, uh, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, oh Alexa, Alexa, stop. Sorry. Shush. Sorry. See, yeah. see. God damn it. <laughs> damn, fuck. You guys must have Google Home. 
<laughs> we had to rename our Alexa. Her name is, I don't know, yeah. something else. Don't say it. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.